I remember being at a meeting with them. They were just going back to Biafra. Sheila Goss is a friend of Dermot Doran, the Holy Ghost priest who was one of the first people to break the Nigerian blockade in Biafra. Sheila and Dermot were both involved in the joint Biafran famine appeal. And the meeting she's talking about here took place in Dublin in 1968. And there was a nun. She was the Reverend Mother from the Medical Missionaries of Mary and Drogheda. And at the time of Sheila's story, during the later stages of the Nigeria-Biafra War, the Nigerian government was making it hard for missionaries to get into Biafra. The nun was worried that her clothes, her habit, might give her away. So Sheila had an idea. I said, maybe a bit of lipstick. And they definitely would think you're a nun. So I gave them my lipstick and off they went. And months later, we met Dermot again. And we said, how did you get on? Or how did she get on? And he said, we were landing and the plane crashed and the pilot said get out get out get out and we all ran for our lives and looked back and there was a plane in flames Dermot went back the next day to see if there'd be any kind of salvage that they could salvage anything and he said the only thing that was left was my lipstick The plane crash that Sheila describes in her story was part of a daring and dangerous aid operation that was run by Irish missionaries during the war in Biafra. At the time that Sheila's story took place, late 1968, the war is in full swing. The Nigerian army is closing in, violently devouring Biafran territory, and tens of thousands of people have become refugees in their own country. Many Irish missionaries, like the nun in Sheila's story, stayed on in their parishes after the war started, rather than return to Ireland. A documentary crew from Ryrick Films was there in the 1960s and spoke to some of the missionaries. Two days before we left in Okoko, the refugees were on the road day and night. Cars were, were absolutely whizzing past all night. Most of the refugees were um, travelled by by foot, as they say, or on bicycles. And it was usually a man wheeling the bicycle and a baby on the back, or the mother on the back with a baby on her lap and a baby on her back. And then another baby on the handlebars. And they usually had a goat or two attached to the back of the uh, bicycle. Just couldn't take the whole of their families and lost some of the children on the way. Because there was a lot of bombing that uh, these few days, you see. And they would be walking along the road and the next thing the jet would come overhead and everybody ran for bush and in the scurry they often lost their children. This decision, which many missionaries made out of a sense of loyalty and duty to their parishioners, turned out to have an enormous impact on the lives of many Biafran people and on their own. Without any preparation or training, or even much warning, the missionaries were expected to perform miracles and save lives. I remember Jack just said that he would wake up and there'd be, at the beginning, there'd be a handful of people outside his door looking for food, for some support, and they became hundreds and they became thousands. 
Susan Finucane is talking about her uncle, Father Dak Finucane, one of the missionaries who changed the lives of so many people in Biafra. And as we'll find out later, a miracle of sorts did happen. Through a network of illicit and dangerous airlifts, missionaries like Jack became smugglers of food and medicine, and eventually even of people. They routed media censorship and propaganda, and ultimately they saved lives. So that's kind of what brought them into it. They were, I suppose they were presented with people outside their door, quite literally, and uh, and they had to do what, what you know people needed to be fed, so they figured out how to feed them. This is SOS, How Ireland Helped a Nation. Episode 3, We Bought a Ship. Before we get into all this, let's head back to Ireland. It's August 1968, and a group of people from the Joint Biafran Famine Appeal are happy. The group that included John O'Loughlin Kennedy and his wife Kay, have raised enough money to send their first shipment of aid to Biafra. These supplies will eventually be carried into Biafra on one of those illicit night flights that Sheila Goss mentioned at the start of this episode. For now though, John and Kay are working out the best way to get the goods to the place where they can be picked up and flown into Biafra. So we chartered a ship called the Corback and it came to Dublin on its way. It picked up some stuff in Belfast, dried skin milk, which was very important because it's a good source of protein and the real problem of famine in Biafra was protein deficiency. And so we had loads of stuff ready to go. Two and a half thousand tonnes of supplies made their way towards Biafra on the Corback. Then we sent another ship, but the point was made that shipping stuff from Europe didn't make much sense if you could buy supplies on the West African coast. So we bought a ship instead, and uh, that was fairly adventurous. We brought it to Dublin and fitted it out for the tropics. That ship was called the Column Kill, and John and Kay had to formally found a company to buy it. The question now was what to call themselves. So they had a chat with their friend Dermot Doran. And he told me about a group in Canada called Biafra Concern. And we thought, well, sure, they won't mind if we borrow their name on the other side of the Atlantic. And then it occurred to us that it was a bit partisan. It was a bit too focused. So we chose Africa Concern. And this turned out to be a brilliant decision because in 1968, everybody in Ireland had an aunt or an uncle or a cousin or the missions in Africa. So they related to Africa. They wouldn't have related to Biafra. You know, sometimes the aunt was in Tanzania, three and a half thousand miles away, but it was still Africa. And so when we were doing something for Africa, we hit a response in the Irish people that was quite amazing. But while most people responded to Africa concern by donating money, Carl Vikens was moved to donate something even more valuable. I had seen uh, and read articles in the paper about Biafra 
and it was such a, a moving story at the time. He spotted the column kill in Port one day when he was driving home with his dad. And on the spur of the moment... I signed on as a cabin boy on the, the ship, very young and very naive, only 16. I was involved with Sea Scouts in Dollymount and my father was the scout leader. My father was also um, a person who had been at sea. Uh, we'd always stop and look at any, anything unusual and this small little ship was tied up nearly at Butt Bridge in an area called St George's Quay and um, we just stopped to have a look at it. Brand new Irish flag flying on the stern and in discussion with people around we discovered that they were looking for crew for the ship and I looked at my dad and said I'd like to go on it. And that, John said much later, was a perfect illustration of the spirit of generosity that existed in Ireland during their famine appeal. Because there was a famine, you could ask people to do what you couldn't dare ask them to do in lesser circumstances. We rang Irish shipping and we said, we bought a ship, we don't know how to run it. And they said, you know, leave it to us, we'll do it for you. And they ran it for us and they never charged us a penny. So let's just sit back and consider this for a while. This was a small group of people who'd gotten together just a short time previously to talk about what, if anything, could be done to help the people in Biafra. And here they were, having just bought their own ship and filling it up with supplies. So the launch day of the column kill was one worth celebrating. Around 100 people gathered at the quayside in late August 1968. Peter Birch, who was, our, was Bishop of Ossery, uh, was one of our patrons, and he came up to bless the ship. And then the most embarrassing moment of my life occurred. The engine wouldn't start. The problem was there was a knack in starting the engine and some of the old crew that had been working on it came with us but it never occurred to them to tell us the knack. And so after some futile attempts to get the engine going we, uh, we all went home somewhat deflated. The ship was eventually repaired, and on the 6th of September, it finally launched. Carl Vikens has a photograph from that day. Yeah, in that photograph, my dad had just come down uh, to see us off, and he had handed me the results of the, the uh, intermediate certificate, or the junior certificate, as it's known as now. And he said, you might like to read those while you're away, and that was it. The column kill arrived at its destination just 90 days after the Catholic and Protestant bishops launched their first appeal for donations. And when I look at the record now uh, and see what we succeeded in doing in 90 days, you know, uh, uh, you'd budget a year and a half to do it at, the, at this stage, you know, but that's the way things worked. 
The Columkill arrived in Sao Tome, a small island around 500 kilometers south of Biafra, on the 29th of September 1968. My first impression of the place was the heat. I remember the incredible sunsets and just the, the, the smell of the tropics. All the noises then, the crickets making the noises and the frogs, just incredible. Carl was looked after by the crew. In fact, he was so happy on board that he ended up staying on the column kill for more than a year. His family were okay with this, for the most part. There must have been a little bit of concern at one stage because um, I got a letter from my mum and it was a letter in the form of a questionnaire. <laughs> and it transpired that I hadn't written for about three months. <laughs> and uh, the questionnaire was, are you well? And I had to just to tick the box, yes or no. Uh, are you happy? Tick box. I said, uh-oh, I think I better write to my mum. Carl also saw the first part of the ingenious distribution system that got the supplies into Biafra from Sao Tome. The aid that we're delivering, when you look at it now and see what it is, it's, uh, we're delivering things from spaghetti to rice, peas, Honda generator parts, bicycle tyres and tubes, uh, butter, uh, yoghurt. Because the Irish missionaries were working out in Nigeria and Biafra, they were able to send information back to Ireland as to what was really needed. And that was one of the big things, that they had no parts for their generators and they had no parts for their motorbikes and their pushbikes. So they felt if you could get that, you could get a transport system up and running. The supplies were unloaded onto barges and then taken on shore to a warehouse. From there, they were shifted onto planes that were operated by an interfaith group called Joint Church Aid. The acronym JCA was cheerfully adopted by the pilots, who referred to the flights as Jesus Christ Airlines. From there, supplies were flown into Biafra. There were between 10 and 15 flights per night. They were landing on makeshift airstrips in places like Uli. Sometime later, John O'Loughlin Kennedy himself flew in on one of these flights, and he saw how dangerous the whole operation was. There were obviously no markers or anything. The airstrip was a widened bit of road through the jungle. The airstrip lights were turned on shortly before landing. The reason why they didn't have the lights on earlier was there was a DC-4 flying around at 16,000 feet. His job was to let a few bombs drop on the airport when the lights came on. The Biafrans had anti-aircraft fire that could go to 15,000 feet, so he flew around at 16,000 feet, so his bombing wasn't very accurate. Anyway, I'm not sure that he wanted it to be very accurate because he knew that if he put the airport out of business, the war would be over. And he was making a, a nice thing as a mercenary pilot. He was known as the intruder. He knew some of the pilots flying in because they were all in the same business. So when one flight undershot the runway and crashed in the jungle, the intruder came on the same wavelength on the aircraft to say, you know, one of your flights has gone down. 
about two miles short of the runway. And I didn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the other thing that you you don't think about is the fact that when people are fighting a war, they have friends on both sides. The intruder, though, and other aircraft bombers did sometimes hit their targets. There's a lot of incidents. Des Mullen, who was a journalist with the Evening Herald, was caught up in one of those incidents. On this occasion, the bomber missed the supply plane. But unfortunately, there was another time, another bombing incident at a place called Oguta. It was just getting dusk. And the bomber used to come over at that time, almost on the, on the dot. Normally, they would drop six bombs and then they'd flick off home. You know? <laughs> they miscalculated this night. The troops, they thought the six bombs were dropped. You're okay now, we can come out. But they dropped four more. I think they hit a plane, you know, that night. Up to now, the story of Biafra, from the Irish side, has been quite remarkable. How Irish people raised a fortune for the joint Biafran famine appeal, how Africa Concern even had enough funds to buy a ship that they could use to pick up supplies on the east coast of Africa and feed it into the nightly joint church aid flights. And while all of this is remarkable in its own way, it happens outside a war zone. So perhaps what happened inside the war zone, how food distribution networks were set up, how people and information were smuggled in and out of the country, perhaps that can be considered even more astounding. And this is where we get to hear about a group of missionaries, and in particular, two Irish men who helped make it all happen. Jack and Angus Finucane, two priests with the Holy Ghost Fathers. So they were parish priests. Angus was there in 1960, and then Jack finished or arrived there about five years later. They were running schools, and they were saying mass. Actually, Angus used to be teased about how long he'd go on with his sermons. Angus and Jack loved their work, and they were two of those missionaries who decided to stay on with their parishioners after Biafra declared independence. I think when the, the Civil War broke out, they were very quickly kind of catapulted into the humanitarian element. They soon took on the role of organising the aid distribution network. And here's how it worked. Angus was stationed at an airstrip in Uli. Whenever a supply plane was close to landing, men were sent out to briefly light the kerosene lamps on the runway. Once the plane landed, they had a 20-minute window to unload the 10 tonnes of supplies and send the plane back to Sao Tome. They had commandeered trucks. And Angus and his team unloaded the supplies into those trucks. It was backbreaking work. They did it in pitch blackness and tropical humidity and with an enemy bomber circling overhead. The lorries then travelled 12 miles in a convoy to a nearby Catholic mission and unloaded into a half-built Catholic church. Uncle Jack was behind the scenes a little bit. He was organising the warehouses. So he would receive all the, um, the supplies in and then he would organise them for it to be sent out to the parishes. 
And here's the interesting thing about that supply chain. Before the war, the network of churches and schools functioned as social hubs, so they quickly became centres for feeding people and distributing food. But it was also a dangerous operation. People who are dying of starvation will become desperate. I remember Angus always told a funny story of tackling, having a 19 stone rugby tackle on some bandit who came in one night and tried to, to raid the supplies. The convoy had been held up by armed hijackers. Angus jumped out of his Peugeot 404 estate and tackled one of the armed men to the ground. The man was handed over to the police and the fleet took off again. The supplies were eventually delivered to refugee camps some of which house up to 7,000 people. They also went to feeding centres, clustered around village schools and churches. Here, the starving people lined up to receive their food. A RIARC documentary from the late 60s shows a rural church with lines of young children holding bulbs. The children begin to gather here while it's still dark, and by sunrise there are up to 4,000 of them. There are little bowls and basins ready to receive their one meal of the day. Today they're getting gary, a native food made from cassava roots and powdered milk from Ireland. When you have that kind of food, you lick the whole of the plate like you'll be happy. Philip Sizoma was in one of those refugee camps when he was six years old. Did you see people dying from hunger? In the camp, yes. They were children. By the middle of 1968, it's estimated that 10,000 people were dying every week. 6,000 of them were children. Every morning, they have to go around and pick dead children of the camp. You know, sometimes my mom, like, she'll be shedding tears. She would hold me tightly and my kid brother. When she see other children being swept away. Was your family reliant on food aid that entire time? Absolutely, that was what survived us. The missionaries distributed more than just food. They passed out clothing and, if you were lucky, things from abroad. We were able to use that, the distribution system within Biafra, as a postal system. There were people from Nigeria and Biafra all over the world and they realised that if they sent gift parcels to Africa Concern in Ireland, we would get them down on a flight and they relief distribution system would distribute them. I saw the whole aid operation in progress and and I saw some of the harrowing things too of mothers and babies lying on mud floors in a state of starvation. Some of the missionaries couldn't cope with that. You have to feed the relief workers. (laughs) And some of them felt guilty at eating or having a beer in the evening. But if you didn't eat a decent meal and have a beer in the evening, you know, you couldn't keep your team working at full strength 14 hours a day. In February 1969, Africa Concern also started sending their own flights into Biafra from Libreville in Gabon. In their first month, they organized 25 flights. They carried salt, milk powder, rice, stockfish, and meat. 
And often, the return flights carried more than just food. When we were flying the aid in, we had empty aircraft coming out. So we started to take out children who were starving. Another Holy Ghost priest, Kevin Doheny, had the harrowing task of deciding who would go out on the flight. And he was doing it on the basis of, did they look like they might survive the flight? And if they didn't look like they might survive the flight, he handed the child back to his parents and it was a kind of sentence of death because the child would would be dead within two or three weeks. We flew these children out on the return legs to both Libreville in Gabon and the Abidjan in the Ivory Coast. We set up camps for them. John's brother Raymond, a Holy Ghost priest, organised a team of missionaries to run the camps. They formed our management team all the way down to Africa. You know, they put together the camps and they were marvellous people. You could trust your life to them. They were used to surviving on their own. They did marvellous things and uh, those children survived. I saw them in Ivory Coast playing in the yard and dancing and singing. It took six to eight weeks of good food and tender loving care and they were children again. That was heartwarming and I only wished I had a video camera there that I could have brought it home to the people of Ireland. On the 23rd of December 1969, the Nigerian forces launched their final offensive against Biafra. And by January 1970, Biafra's brief leader, General Oduku, had gone into exile in the Ivory Coast. The Biafran surrender papers were signed in Lagos on the 15th of January 1970. Within days, Biafra collapsed and was folded back into Nigeria. It's estimated that up to 2 million Biafrans died of starvation between 1967 and 1970. And while it's hard to quantify the impact that Africa Concern and other aid agencies had on the people in Biafra, you could say that the combined relief efforts saved millions of lives. In a book he wrote about Biafra called The Biafra Story, The journalist and author Frederick Forsyth stated that there was no language to express the heroism of the priests of the Holy Ghosts and the nuns of the Order of the Holy Rosary. The most heartbreaking tasks and dirtiest work, he wrote, were undertaken by the Roman Catholics. After the war, Jack Finucane and other missionaries were rounded up and briefly imprisoned before being expelled from Nigeria. He was um, put in a detention centre, I think, uh, basically living in squalor for a few weeks while they had the hearing. And then he was sentenced to six months, him along with others. And they served, I think, about three weeks. Their legacy lives on today. And evidence of that can be seen 
in an unusual object that Angus had in his home and was very attached to. He had an old Biafran water pot, which had been made by the son of a 12-year-old boy whose family had been supported by the, the kitchens. And that legacy is also alive in the voices of people like Philip Suzoma, whose family was sustained by foreign aid and who now lives in Ireland. And this is the story I've told my children. They're all Irish, and I said to them, your Irish is not by my own making, it's divine. And this, God wanted you to be part of the nation that gave me life. Perhaps the biggest legacy of all is within the organisation of Africa Concern itself that was co-founded and run tirelessly by John and Kay O'Lachlan Kennedy. After the Biafran War ended, the group went to work in Bangladesh after a cyclone hit. From there, the non-denominational organisation, now known as Concern Worldwide, was born. John still maintains that none of this would have happened without the skills and input of his wife Kay. On the occasion of Kay's funeral, eight people from Biafra, eastern Nigeria, turned up in their full ceremonial garb and sang for Kay outside the church. And they had posters which said, you were our mother. Because if Kay's initiative hadn't taken place, their mothers wouldn't have survived and they wouldn't be there at all. And they were fairly conscious of that. There's no substitute for saying thank you. And so I want to say thank you to virtually everybody in Ireland who has at some stage supported the work of Africa Concern, which is now called Concern. And if it wasn't for the people who subscribed to support people they would never know, nothing would have happened. The credit is to the people of Ireland and it's to them in a big way. SOS, How Ireland Helped a Nation, is a Concern Worldwide production. It was presented by Clara Hearn and produced by Colette Kinsella for Red Hair Media. <laughs>